This is the Great Shalom Broadcast. My name is Sharon Sarles, and today in the studio I have a very special guest. This is Dr. Andy Wakefield. Good morning, Dr. Wakefield. Good morning. He is going to tell us the real scientific truth about this controversial aspect about autism and toxicity and immunizations. I know you're going to want to call your friends right now and get them to tune in because we have got the truth to tell you. Dr. Andy Wakefield, welcome. Now, Dr. Wakefield is a medical doctor, graduate of the University of London, a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, worked as a gastroenterologist, and in 1998 discovered autistic intercolitis. So it's really his work as a researcher that has made him famous, and he has worked with a lot of collaborations both in the United States and around the world, and has many high honors, both in the U.K. and the U.S. So we are delighted to have you. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Now, let's start right off the bat and tell our listeners, what are we talking about when we're talking about autism or autism spectrum disorder? Well, these are a a group of disorders associated with impairments in communication, um, reciprocal interaction with siblings and uh, parents, for example, uh, and problems in um, communication generally. Mm-hmm. So delayed speech and inability to form social attachments or to kind of get social interaction, is that right? Yes, an aloneness, uh, what was it previously interpreted as an aloofness, but a failure to engage socially um, and repetitive the indulgence in repetitive behaviors um, that are clearly abnormal. Mm-hmm. And these children may be extremely bright or not. Is that right? Yes, indeed. And the more you meet these children, the more you realize that they are actually, uh, in many cases, very intelligent. But it's their ability to actually communicate that intelligence and our ability to understand it mm-hmm. that really um, leads to the problems. Mm-hmm. And is autism like a disease where either you have it or you do not? Or is it like a uh, disorder that you may have a touch or you may have it very badly, or even be disabled from it. Well, autism is defined by its behaviors, and some children may be what are called uh, profoundly autistic, so they really have no speech at all, no language, no engagement, no socialization, total aloneness, Uh, whereas other children uh, with higher functioning forms of autistic spectrum disorder, such as Asperger's syndrome, have no delay in acquisition of speech, and they can communicate. And their big problem is socialization and interaction with their peers. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, some Asperger's patients are really quite advanced with um, linguistic skills. Is that right? Some are remarkable. Some mm-hmm. have extraordinary gifts, yes. Right. And so we wonder, really, why we have this. But the statistics that I have show that there's been a rapid, an astoundingly rapid increase in the prevalence of this in our society. And the figures that I have were the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says one in 155 children. And that's remarkable in itself, and particularly when in the 50s, I think the stats were two or three in 10,000. So tell us about that from a sociological point of view that seems remarkable and significant. But I'm sure you're much more up on these statistics. Well, I think when I was at medical school and I qualified in 1981, I, we weren't even taught about autism. It was so unusual. Mm-hmm. It was this odd idiosyncratic problem that rarely, rarely occurred. As you say, two in 10,000 children. 
And then suddenly there was an explosion. In this country, beginning in the, the early 90s, there was an explosion in the number of diagnoses. And these are not children that you would have missed historically. There, were, mm -hmm. there was a genuine increase. Uh, the data from the CDC that you quote are data that are now seven years old on eight-year-old children, so they're a long way out of date. And the numbers coming out of the UK from the latest study from Cambridge are up to one in 50 children. So an extraordinary number of children with this serious lifelong disorder and the question of course has been is this a real rise or are we just better at making the diagnosis mm -hmm. and these questions have been asked they've been answered and in an extremely important study that literally came out of California this week out of the Mind Institute UC Davis showed definitively that the vast majority of the increase is a real increase and not due to changing diagnostic practice or earlier diagnosis. Yes well and my own Experience would echo that when I was a teacher in a daycare, when I was in high school, we did not see this. And we do see this today. Children are different. And if they are that different in such a small time span, then what might be the cause of this? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a crucial question because if you see this sudden a hockey stick effect in the uh, incidence of a disorder, it suddenly mm -hmm. goes up within a very short time frame then the redundant arguments about whether this is a genetic disorder uh, go away. I mean, there may be a genetic contribution to it, but the, what has caused the dramatic increase in the incidence has to be environmental. You do not have genetic epidemics. So uh, mm. this is an environmental impact that has mm -hmm. changed. Uh, something has affected children from very early on and has led to this increase in the incidence. Now, it may be one uh, exposure, or it may be many exposures acting in concert. We don't know. We simply don't know at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, that certainly makes sense. So what are the likely candidates? What are we looking at that may be causing this? Well, again, this, goes, this, this on the face of it is a very complex question. Mm -hmm. But when you go back to the roots of clinical medicine, the fundamental principles of clinical medicine, that is, you listen to the parent. Mm-hmm. You listen to the parent in the clinic and you ask them what their experience was with their child and what has changed. And my experience of this was of a particular type of autism where parents came in and said, my child was developing normally, they had speech and language, they played, they had eye contact, and then all of that disappeared either rapidly or insidiously after they had received, in many cases, the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now, is that real or not? We don't know. Mm -hmm. The story is real. What happened to the child, often it's not just a coincidental event. The child became very sick after the vaccine. They may have had a febrile seizure. They may have screamed for days on end. And after a period of a week or so, started to slide away. They started to lose their skills. And that isn't just the parent noticing something at a particular time and making that link with vaccination. This mm -hmm. is an exposure followed by an adverse reaction followed by a subsequent decline. And I think if you take the trouble to listen to the parents in the clinic, you hear this kind of story time and time again. Now, again, that does not make it the cause, but it makes it a very important candidate to either rule in or to rule out with due medical and scientific investigation. So that's what we call anecdotal evidence it would seem to me that then some scientific research would be in order. And, of course, that's why we're so delighted to have you. What I know, and it frustrates me no end, I have the AMA pocket guide someone gave me. It may be a couple of years old, and it says we know nothing. 
And then I have a book that a physician gave me here in town that looks to me like it has 10 years of citations to peer-reviewed journals. Now, I'm not a medical researcher. I don't even have organic chemistry under my belt, but I do know what peer-reviewed journals are. I'm looking for an answer from science. And so it seems to me that this is highly controversial, and uh, I know that some research is going on, but why is this not being talked about like well, it, 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 it perplexed me that here we had a children, and the other thing that the children, the parents told us when they came to the clinic is my child has terrible bowel problems. Mm-hmm. They have diarrhea 10 times a day, 12 times a day. They have bloating. I know they're in pain, although they can no longer tell me they're in pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just bang their head against the wall or scream, but I know that my child's in pain. Mm-hmm. And the physicians, by and large, had said, well, your child's autistic. They're bound to have these bowel problems. Well, that makes no sense at all. And we have an obligation as physicians to investigate these children to the best of our ability to determine whether those symptoms have a basis in a disease or not. In other words, do the children have intestinal inflammation? Is there something in their diet that's provoking their GI symptoms, their gastrointestinal symptoms? Mm -hmm. And when we took that story at face value and said, look, put the autism to one side. Let us treat this child just as we would treat any other child with these symptoms. Lo and behold, we found that the parents were right. The children had a bowel disease. They had inflammation. That inflammation was treatable. And that treatment led to not only an improvement in the bowel symptoms, but in many cases an improvement in the behavioral symptoms. Children started smiling and talking. Mm. They woke up. They changed completely. And we thought, well, that didn't happen. We did it 10 times, and it happened 10 times. We did it 20 times, it happened 20 times. And after a while, a pattern emerges that is very compelling, that there is some link between the bowel and the brain. And indeed, mm-hmm. it reiterates the fact that the parents know their children best, and the parents were right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that warms my heart, because I want to see turnaround, and any parent does. You have a sick child, you want that child well. And if you have a child who's having behavioral trouble, you're looking for that clearing of the skies and that smile. And so this is a really wonderful um, story, and we'd like to pursue that research. And we'll come back here in just a moment to ask what a parent can do or perhaps an educator who's a layperson in the medical field of what we can do. And so we'll just take a break now to thank our sponsors. This broadcast was originally aired in January 2009, and the podcasting is not underwritten. Thank you so much. This is the Great Shalom Broadcast, and my guest today in the studio is Dr. Andy Wakefield, a medical doctor who practices right here in Metro Austin and a world-famous researcher. We're talking about autism and what we know about autism, and we will talk about what we can do. So it appears that there is a connection between autism and digestive problems, and it also appears that there is a connection between autism and toxicity. Is that right? I think that's the the prevailing concepts, yes, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so what is it about our environment that's so toxic? We talked about parents saying, I had a normal child, I got a vaccine, and now I have a sick child. So what is that about? I think vaccines are one issue that clearly need to be investigated because they're a new exposure, they're a a rapidly changing exposure, and we've seen a rapidly exploding number of children with autism. 
it also derives from the parent's story of, of changes in their child following vaccination. I think one of the other concerns, particularly here in America, is, has been the mercury that has been used as a preservative in vaccines, which uh, when they measured it, when they added it up according to the number of vaccines that the kids were getting, then it was way over the Environmental Protection Agency guidelines on toxicity for methyl mercury, and that was of major concern. They just hadn't been adding it up. They'd been putting more vaccines in, but not adding it up. Someone was asleep at the switch, Mm. and that's a great shame. So we need to understand what that contribution was to it. But, of course, our environment is also uh, potentially highly toxic. And there's a study here just from San Antonio uh, showing that your proximity, your, how close you are to a, a coal-burning power plant and therefore to toxic emissions like mercury, then your risk of autism increases proportionally the closer you are. So it's a complex equation. We live in a very toxic environment and something probably related to that toxic environment is causing this problem. Mm-hmm. So what does a parent do? Well, I think that this is a huge question. I think that a parent, there are two things. If you have a child or if you haven't got a child but you're worried about a child, that a newborn or a, a child um, that you're thinking of, you're planning to have, then mm-hmm. uh, the thing to do, I think, is to reduce your exposures as much as possible. And this requires healthy eating. There's been a Um, almost a moratorium on the consumption of fish such as tuna by pregnant mothers because the levels of methyl mercury in those in tuna is now very high Mm -hmm. so reduce your exposures uh, to a bare minimum Um, keep yourself as healthy as possible Uh, read understand the background read the science not just the science or the the spin on the science that's put out by for example the american academy of pediatrics but go more broadly than that i mean you found your own yourself your own source of uh, peer-reviewed information on what you can do to help children with autism Mm -hmm. and so that is on the one hand on the other hand if you do have a child who is affected then don't despair when you get that diagnosis initially, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole uh, the explosion of science that's coming now is very, very confusing to parents. But there are resources. There are people out there who are very willing to help. And fortunately, here in Austin, we have um, Thoughtful House Centre for Children, which offers a multidisciplinary approach to helping children right through from nutrition to gastroenterology to general medicine to education and basic community support. So the help is out there. You have access to the the internet, um, track it down, and you will find that the world is not as bleak a place or as lonely a place as you thought it was. Yes. Well, the preventative makes sense to me to stay away from heavy metals. In fact, we probably should always be doing that, whether it's autism, mental retardation, or just general health. We don't want to expose ourselves and our children to that in any case. But the next question in terms of preventative Of course, many parents are going to want to ask, but what about that immunization? Should we avoid that or not? And I know that there's quite a push by the state authorities in Texas to be sure every child is vaccinated. The public schools, even the daycares, are trying to enforce this. What does a parent do about that? Well, this is a a real dilemma for parents and and, uh, a major problem, a headache for public health. And the reason it's a headache is because the problem of vaccine safety studies have not been, they haven't been conducted properly, rigorously for long enough, and they certainly haven't looked at the combination of vaccines that children get in the real world. They've studied the safety of individual vaccine components. And then you've got the, it's thrown into the mix, the thimerosal, you've got other uh, additives to vaccines that may make 
um, uh, cause potential problems. And it's not, this is not an anti-vaccine argument. Let me be absolutely mm-hmm. clear about that. It's about the safest way in which to protect children from infectious disease. And you cannot simply throw all these vaccines into a child and expect them to tolerate it on a uniform basis. Not every child is made the same way, and quite, quite the opposite. Children are very, very different, and some may handle things in a very different way. How does a child who's already sick or with a fever handle uh, a vaccine? How does a child who's on antibiotics handle a vaccine? Probably in a very different way to a child who is perfectly healthy. And so the, the issue I have is for the regulators to go back and to thoroughly investigate uh, what has happened and what may be happening and before they add any further vaccines into the schedule because um, parents are very concerned and genuinely concerned that there may be a problem and simply putting the propaganda out there that vaccines are safe and are rigorously tested, I'm afraid, is not going to wash in the eyes of the public. Mm-hmm. So as a citizen, maybe we should be voting for monies for real research and demanding real science because we do, as a society, need immunizations, but we need them to be safe. I think objective, dispassionate science is absolutely crucial if we're going to resolve this, uh, cru- this important debate. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. And I think you're absolutely right. As a parent, when you're facing this diagnosis, it truly is terrifying. The good news is that there are some physicians, even right here in town, who are knowledgeable about this and who can help, and that there are some success stories. And uh, Thoughtful House, of course, is one of those uh, outposts, and you have several physicians working with you, and actually a multidisciplinary team, isn't that right? That's right. When we set this up, we were trying to work out what these children need for the best. They have a medical disorder that can be treated, can be understood and treated. They can be got out of pain. They can be made a lot better. What do they need at that stage? Well, they need educational input because there is education out there, applied behavioral analysis. It works extremely well. But if you've got a child who's in pain and running around and banging their head, you can spend all of your money on ABA, applied behavioral analysis, and make no progress at all. But if your child is well and out of pain and is able to sit and focus and concentrate, then it's far more rewarding for everybody concerned. And then to put it into a research model to say, are we doing the best thing? If not, how do we improve? How do we communicate that? Uh, to the scientific uh, and medical community. So that's the basis of Thoughtful House. Mm-hmm. We also have a community program, an outreach program, which uh, enables parents to come to Thoughtful House on a regular basis for seminars to keep up with what's going on both locally, nationally, and in the scientific arena. Mm-hmm. So it's several disciplines getting together, whether it is the uh, digestive problems or the toxic problems or some other medical problem, and then working together with those who can work on the uh, social interaction and the education problems, because these are young children, and so everyone working together. So if you'd like to check out Thoughtful House, they do have a website. It's www.thoughtfulhouse.org, and it's located in Westlake. And again, there are a number of doctors, and um, look around. You'll find uh, seminars and so forth, and So I'm just delighted to be sharing this because I know it's a hot topic. What should a person do, a parent do, first off, they see they have a child with a problem. Maybe they're looking at their toddler and they're realizing this is not normal toddler behavior. What might be the first step? Well, I think the important thing, and this is a message that I always communicate to parents, is trust your instincts. There is no one who knows your child like you. And often your concerns are entirely genuine, 
but also, sadly, sometimes they're dismissed by the doctor, and that doctor does not want to concern you or raise anxieties, so they may say, well, come back in a year, come back in six months, and we'll see. But if you are concerned, then don't be put off by the argument, well, you're a bilingual family and he's a bit confused, or boys are always a little slower than girls, or he's just a boy. That's not good enough anymore, because we know that the earlier you diagnose children, the more you can do and the the better your results. So if your instincts tell you that there's a problem, then seek help. And a diagnosis from uh, a professional is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, certain, there are several diagnosticians around, certainly, again, it's something offered by our uh, collaborator at Thoughtful House Card. But uh, push for, a, for um, a proper consultation with an expert who is going to give you a definitive answer on whether your child has a problem or not. Because, as I say, early intervention is the best approach. Yes, and from the perspective of an early childhood educator, I know how serious it is when the developmental milestones are just missed. If a child is sick, then they're not learning the normal things that a toddler or a preschool would learn. It's very serious, but it's so much easier to make up ground the the less ground that is lost. That's so, absolutely right. Yes. And so not all physicians are equally knowledgeable about all issues. And so uh, it is a wonderful good news that we do have some who are on top of this in Austin. And so encourage you to follow your instincts and seek out good help. And so, I, again, I am just delighted to bring the real truth, the scientific truth, um, to you. And from my perspective, of course, that dovetails with the, uh, the spiritual truth that God wants well-being for all children. So as I always do, uh, let us pray. And uh, if you don't mind, pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this physician, this researcher, and for all doctors who work truly for the benefit of their patients. I ask you to bless Dr. Wakefield and all such who research or who uh, serve their clients to the best of their ability. Bless them. Bless the parents who are making difficult decisions about their children's well-being. Help us as parents, help us as citizens to seek out the truth and to speak the truth and to follow after you and your will that all children will be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would also appeal to you to bless us at this broadcast. I want to continue to bring the truth to you and we need money to pay for airtime. So please contact me at P.O. Box 971, Austin, Texas, 78630. That's P.O. Box 971, Austin, Texas, 78630. We are just seeking the best for all children, and I hope you will join us in that. Write us. Also, you may write me directly at info at greatshalom.org. So, Dr. Wakefield, have you got any last words for us? Yes, I think, once again, uh, as parents, there is no one who knows your child better than you do. You must trust your instincts, and you must follow those instincts. And uh, invariably, um, almost invariably, you will be proven correct. And the fundamental rule of clinical medicine to my medical colleagues out there is to trust in the parent or the patient, because the first rule we learn when we go into medicine is that the origin of a patient's problem is in the first thing they tell you. All right. Great. Well, this is Sharon Sarles, 
This is the Great Shalom Broadcast. Thank you.